I wake up to the sound of rain against the window and a child screaming. Where am I? Sam and I arrived in Tulsa at 10 p.m. the night before. After a long day of driving through all of Missouri, we crashed at a Hilton Inn on the outskirts of Tulsa that didn't seem to have been renovated since the 70s. Even the pictures of dogs and orchids weren't higher quality than something off of a free stock photo site. It was a little sad. We woke up to gray skies and an obnoxious kid torturing his parents in the room over. Not the, oh, what a beautiful morning, I was expecting in Oklahoma. It was a Sunday, which is a workout day for Sam and I. We wanted to keep to our routine as much as possible before sitting in a car for a full workday. We took the elevator down to the gym and found it packed with maskless, heavy breathing humans. I could feel the cloth of my mask suck into my mouth as I audibly gasped. An older man was in the center of the room on the only elliptical. Can't get a lick of space around here, he says in rhythm to his machine. His big bleached white teeth shaped into a smile and I was horrified. I felt like I could see all of the germs and spit and air exiting his mouth, spreading all over the room. The invisible germs would fall like dust particles in the sunlight. Since we found out that COVID is transmitted by air, my brain envisions all of the germs coming out of people's mouths. It's a weird side effect. Sam and I spin on our heels and walk out of there. We go for our separate runs outside in the rain because I would rather catch a cold than COVID. When I finish my run and came back to the hotel through the lobby, I see the breakfast spread and a handful of maskless residents touching, breathing, and coughing all over the free bananas and sugar-free yogurt. I skip the breakfast. I guess COVID doesn't exist in Oklahoma. God, this is so fucking weird. We take hot showers and split. Once we leave the mini metropolis, we drive into the low, long, wide plains. The colors don't get more exciting than beige. I left Oklahoma thinking that if I'm bad in this life, I'll be born in the Great Plains in my next one. I stare outside the passenger side window and Sam moves us to the right side lane. We pass a red robin and I notice a woman trying to make a turn onto the road. She is stuffing french fries into her face as quickly as she can before turning left. Her disposable mask is pushed down below her chin, moving up and down, up and down with each aggressive chomp of greasy, softened fries. The masks. I am so tired of them. They cause acne on my chin that is so painful I have to get this heavy-duty prescription medicine for it to get taken care of. And in my worst moments, they make me feel claustrophobic and tight and I can, I no longer care to make small talk because I just want to get the fuck out as quickly as possible and strip it off my face. I hate them as much as anyone else, but I know that they're a prophylactic to prevent me or anyone I breathe on from getting sick. I'm so tired. Blue Beru crosses the state line into Texas. The sign says, Texas, drive friendly, the Texas way, as a teenager passes us on a motorcycle with no helmet, does a wheelie, and speeds ahead. As we cross the Texas panhandle, 
we saw the strangest car accident in the distance. Ten Cadillac cars were nosediving into the dirt in the middle of a cow patch. It's the same way that ducks stick their head underwater as their tail feathers stick out into the air. The cars were neatly in a line, spaced apart and facing the highway, like a metal stonehenge. We had arrived at the iconic roadside attraction, Cadillac Ranch. Sam and I pull over to the side of the road and head over. We have just enough time to stop and stretch before four more hours to Santa Fe. Our feet walk in rhythm against the crunchy mud as the cars become bigger into view. The shadows rotate like a clock in the field, tracing time like a modern sundial. It all felt faintly familiar. Sorry, I don't want to make it sound like this wasn't planned because it totally was. This wasn't my first time at Cadillac Ranch. The last time I stood on this plot of land, I was 13 and a terrible person. I need to preface that I was a terrible person because I was swimming in hormones that I didn't have a handle on. And I was so set on ruining the trip to the Grand Canyon that my mother and her obnoxious cousins from Oklahoma had conspired to take me on, aka planned. I mostly rolled my eyes through it. I had these bangs that covered one eye because I thought that I looked cool. So I mostly hid behind my bangs. On the drive from Oklahoma to Santa Fe, we also pulled over on the side of the I-40 West Highway, just like Sam and I were doing now. And the first time I was there, I noticed that there were cars with license plates from all over that lined the road near the entrance as we searched for a parking spot. But this time, there were only a few local cars that took up space. Cadillac Ranch was made in the 70s by a group of hippie artists called Ant Farm. They drove down from San Francisco to make something that people could interact with and enjoy on their 24-hour drive to California. Maybe they were some statement against cars, given that they were made during the heyday of the American road trip. But ever since they were installed, Ant Farm encouraged travelers to interact with their art, and travelers have been vandalizing the cars to their heart's delight ever since. When I was a teen, there were a lot of other people walking around, maybe like 20. Most were speaking English in a variety of American accents, and I think there was one couple speaking French. The stoic cars were surrounded by spray bottles of every color, littered on the ground like rainbow sprinkles on an ice cream cone. I picked up one and tried to get as much distance between me and my relatives. So I meandered. These cars were heavy with spray paint. The layers of aerosol dye began to weigh down and accumulate like multicolored stalagmites over the chassis open bellies. The frames were covered in different neon hues that kind of looked like a gobstopper candy. You could scratch a rim and see all of the colored layers at once. I messed around and read messages the other visitors had left. Couples sprayed their initials and the date next to forever or circled their initials in a heart, just like they would on a tree. And I remember thinking, I wish I had someone that I could do that with. I picked up a bottle, maybe like blue or purple, and I think I sprayed my name and one of the rotating crushes, maybe Cassin or Ethan or Tyler on the side of a car. Most likely all three. I like to weigh my options. Maybe by spraying their names, we would get together when I returned back to New York. And no matter how silly that thought is, I, I still had that like such deep longing to be seen and loved. Or maybe I could make eye contact with a local teenage stranger who's walking around right now. We would kiss behind the car seats and I would feel something incredible between us. We would have to do long distance, but our connection was strong enough to make it work. 
I scanned around to see if there was anyone worthy of making out with in between the crumbling cars. I just wanted someone to notice me. <sighs> After looking around, I put down this brake hand and I walked back over to my mom. But this time, I turned my head and Sam was standing next to me. I put my spray can down and watched him inspect the cars, trying to decipher the thick spray-painted hieroglyphics of drunk people or foreigners that had been left behind. I picked up another bottle, pushed the button, and started spraying. Now I was here with someone who I actually do love. Someone that my 13-year-old self was craving. I fulfilled my own prophecy. I returned with someone I loved completely and who loved me back. Sam and I kissed in front of the cars, took some selfies, and then headed back to our car. Our shadows stretched over the cow patch on the cold march seeped into our sweaters. We kept heading west. I caught myself in this loop, retracing a world that I explored when I was younger and seeing it with older eyes. I noticed the signs of the Cadillac's aging and I tried not to think about my own. Cadillac Ranch was made for the road tripper. It was set up during the heyday of cross-country trips and was an excuse to stretch your legs and experience a little sparkle in between stops. It helped break up the trip and give travelers the feeling that the journey is just as fun as the destination. Something that I love about the American road trip is that we've left things for each other to break up the days when you're just sitting in a car for eight hours. I love how this one strange piece of public art was made with travelers in mind. Maybe that's why there's so much hype and lore around the Great American Road Trip. There's so many little Easter eggs sprinkled across our country for us to find and interact with. Today on the episode, we're hitting the road. We'll talk to individuals who are doing their best to give the American road trippers an extremely unique experience. So get your favorite car snacks and put on some sweatpants because we're in for a long ride. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Let's get something straight here. Road trips are not easy in other places. It's physically impossible to hop into the car and venture out into the Australian outback or the dense jungles of Colombia. Road trips can't happen everywhere, which is why it's such a big deal here. Through the 50s and 60s, most Americans owned a car and the highway system was complete, the only good thing to come out of the Eisenhower administration. Vacationing abroad was too expensive back then, so Americans settled in our own expansive backyard and made the most of it. Our mountain vacations were spent in Colorado or Vermont, not the Swiss Alps. For a beach trip, our options were between California, the Carolinas, or Florida, not Brazil or Croatia. There was no Yelp to find the best donut or boutique housing. Travelers would have to take a chance in nearly every decision. But I also wonder if the Great American Road Trip is also what prompted our cookie-cutter culture. After traveling from New Hampshire to Arizona, maybe all you want is something kind of familiar. As it became easier to travel across our own nation, things started looking more the same. 
Maybe the 80s made way for that. That's when Americans started traveling more internationally. And the American road trip kind of turned into roadkill. Maybe it made our experiences vulnerable to corporations and big brand names. The bespoke motels slowly transformed into copy-paste Hiltons. The mom-and-pop diners got swapped out for McDonald's. The local charm gets packed up and replaced by a strip of big box stores. On our first day of driving for this trip, Sam and I hit the I-40 highway headed west, a straight line from New York to Indianapolis, and I couldn't help but notice all the sameness and the repetitive strip malls. Olive Garden, Target, Starbucks, Staples, Walmart, Walgreens, Starbucks, Barnes & Noble, Chili, Noble, Walmart, Olive Garden, Starbucks, Staples, Target, Walgreens, Starbucks, Barnes & Noble, Olive Garden. They give no local indication as to where we are. At one point, Sam and I stopped for food at an Ohio strip mall just before getting to Indianapolis. And you couldn't convince me that I wasn't in Colony, New York. Honestly, that 13-hour drive felt like it was one long ride to the Crossgates Mall where my mom would take my sisters and I shopping as kids. Did the American road trip have anything to do with that? Helping the traveler from Washington have some semblance of comfort while driving to Florida? Maybe we started prioritizing sameness to make up for how big and diverse and easily out of control our country could have been. And then there's the capitalist argument, but I want to keep this light. Although we were traveling during COVID, I wanted to avoid the cookie cutter hotels as much as possible. For the longtime listeners, you know that couch surfing is my ideal form of housing. I love living with a local, getting the day-to-day perspective in history, and putting all of my trust, and sometimes life, into one other person's hands. COVID cut that off. We've had to be literally separated from each other and it suffocated any spontaneity that travel can bring. But I still wasn't deterred from having a very different experience. So as I was researching places to stay, I focused for the local and boutique establishments. At each stopping point, I hunted for independently owned hotels, hostels, and motels. I wasn't picky. Unfortunately, in some cities, there were no options other than Hilton. Even quote-unquote bespoke places were surreptitiously owned by Marriott. Which is why I was so excited to stay in Indie Hostel in Indianapolis. Indie Hostel is located in Broad Ripple, the up-and-coming hotspot in Indianapolis for locally owned bars, cafes, and restaurants. At the end of our 13-hour drive, Sam and I headed through a Midwestern rainstorm and arrived in this residential neighborhood at 11 p.m. We were a little loopy from the long drive and laughing at Pete Holmes because we needed a Midwestern comic to get us through the final hour. But when we finally pulled in, it felt like we were parking in someone's garage. The space at Indie Hostel is divided between two buildings. One, the classic multi-dorm hostel experience, and the other was a two-bedroom apartment, which is where Sam and I snuck in once we arrived. It was so perfect to creep in late at night and not disturb anyone or be exposed to them. Honestly, we were the real liability, given that we had left Brooklyn and traveled over four states to get there. After a peaceful Midwestern slumber and a cup of coffee, I had a conversation with Joseph, the manager, who is originally from England. We discussed what it's been like working at a hostel, a place intended for strangers to travel and meet other strangers. We discussed what it was like working at a hostel during a time when we're disincentivized to be close to one another. 
And they do have a weird reputation in America than they do other places. To be totally honest, I was kind of surprised to find one. For reasons that I don't fully understand yet, in American culture, our ideas of what hostel life is like are skewed with stories about teenage travelers getting roofied or kidnapped. Where across the pond, and honestly around the world, hostels are an incredibly popular option to meet other travelers and live on the cheap. Joseph was attracted to working in a hostel because it was so unique in the States. Joseph and the owners of Indie Hostel are revamping the hostel life experience for the modern traveler. So what is this neighborhood? Because we were driving through and I was like, this is very residential. And it yeah. just wasn't what I was expecting. This is technically called South Broadrip or Sobro, as, as you know, some people around here call it. Right. And, you know, that's just because... Broad Ripple, which is about two miles north of here, is uh, is kind of the, the largest commercial area around here, and it's you know it's a nice little village. There's a lot going on, a lot of nightlife, some nice restaurants and shops and stuff. Take a nice walk down the canal. It's a really nice spot. And then this area, in the last few years, it's really been growing. It's still up and coming. It's, it's a really cool area. I think it's a little cooler than than Broad Ripple, which is a little more sort of corporate now. Hmm. Around here, it's all you know, family-owned places, and right. um, it's got you know a bit of a cooler vibe to it um, because it's still kind of new. Mm-hmm. Tell me the history of this space. So we've been here about well, the owners opened this place up, I think, two thousand and three. So it's been about eighteen years uh, that's been here. It's been through quite a few changes in that time. So yeah, in in the past, we've done a lot of events here. We've done like folk festivals and stuff out in the backyard. We still do weddings, we still do concerts. Um, even through COVID, we managed to do a comedy night every Thursdays outside. So, you know, kind of social distanced and yeah. people could bring their own beers and sit outside, bring their own blankets and stuff. And that was a comedy night for about, I want to say about eight weeks every Thursday. So it was great. So that sort of got people out when people were desperate to do things yeah. again. And needed a laugh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On a booming day how many people are in here um it's been so long since a booming <laughs> day you know it's it's it's, that, it's been that sort of year so um no. we normally have probably on, on a weekend so right now we have um one two three four five we have 10 people here right now which you know that's quite a lot for yeah for recent times that's more than we would normally have in the last sort of seven months yeah um but before that traditionally we'd probably have you know 15 people here on a, on a weekend mm-hmm. and that's across the two houses hopefully things will pick up yeah. but we are we have sold a lot of weddings for this year and we're excited working with with a lot of the couples that get married that's awesome this summer. so how does the wedding how do they set that up? Like, do they rent out the whole space? Yeah. And do they get married back there? Yep. Oh my god. So, um, it's quite deceiving actually. The the space is quite a bit bigger than it looks yeah. out there. Um, we can have weddings of about you know 120 guests out there. We do the ceremony and the reception. They rent the whole place out oh for two god. nights, so they can set up. Um, we provide tables and chairs and everything, so they just come in on the Friday, right. set things up, and then you know relax by the campfire or. You know, um, have their family friends over, right. and then uh, 
yeah, the next day they'll have the wedding, the reception, and then up to 40 people can stay over from the wedding. That's amazing. One thing that I've really noticed about this trip is that we drove through Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Jersey, and then we didn't go back to New Jersey, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Indianapolis, I'm like, researching places to stay, there are all of these hotels that are like casually Marriott. They look like they're more boutique or they look, cause that's what I go for is like, I want to have a conversation with somebody who has like been here for a very long time, if not raised here, who like yeah. knows the ins and outs. And I always find that there's something very like, there's something very empty about being in hotels or like the Hilton and all of that stuff. There's such a sameness to all of it. Yeah. But what I love about hostels is like, there aren't these international chains and they're like, this feels so much like a home, which I've loved. And like when we walked into the place that we're staying in, which is so nice, this is a feeling that like, I wouldn't get it up. You yeah. know, and a lot like so. Today we're going to Tulsa, and like our options are just Hilton or Marriott. You know, so like there's just something so. I feel like America is really missing that. You know, that like kind of personalized touch that Europe and like bits of the Middle East and like Asia just seem to like have always had. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a shift um, on the way with that too. I, I sort of notice, especially with the rise of Airbnb, mm. people traveling, I think now, um, kind of seek that. Right. They want that home feel when they travel. They want somewhere new each time. Um, you know, it can be it can be kind of a drag if you travel a lot and you're always going to the same sort of hotels. Yeah. And they're all normally pretty expensive, especially even more now because they're having to compete with Airbnb and you know places like this. And it's, you know, it's kind of draining and it's, it's kind of soulless too, going to those places and yeah. you have to go to your own room and you pe you speak, the only people you speak to, they're speaking to you on sort of a corporate level, on a professional level, not a personal level. And without that personal touch, you just, you, you can feel quite lonely if you're traveling, especially on your own. I know you've done a lot of um, loan traveling. And if you, if you are only staying in hotels where you have to go to your own room, you know, you got a TV and a bed, and that's about it. Uh, you're missing out on a lot. And you know, like we we're just saying to Noah, there, he said, you know, he, he stayed down there. He's already met a friend just from staying in the same place as them. Right. Um, some people are put off by that. Some people don't like that. That's fine. But I think a lot of people, especially after this uh, this virus, will actually be wanting that more. Oh will be desiring some interaction with people because we've missed out on it. Oh my god, I feel like I just want to hug everybody that I see on the street once, yeah. like it's, once it's like totally, totally over. No, I think you're totally right, and I think that that's just like another thing that, like with social media, we're like, it becomes weirdly hard to connect with people who are like right in front of you, but it becomes very easy to connect with people who are like very far away from you. But I think that what COVID has really shown us is that living online is not enough. Us having a conversation like this, and I'm very grateful to be able to quarantine with a partner who I like, love, and we've gotten along famously, but it's like the living online life and just like checking up with people on Zoom, that's yeah. not enough. And what I love about this space is, that was the first thing that Sam said when we 
walked through was he was like, oh my God, I thought that there's a stage here. And like, I'm really loving that this place is, a, it seems like it's a space where like travelers can come and feel very safe and like connected, but also you're able to like connect the larger community, you know, and like bring everybody from Indianapolis and like have them hang out with someone who's like traveling from France or traveling from, you know, Nigeria or wherever. What are your predictions for what travel is going to be like after COVID? Yeah, I think, so a lot of people have been kind of going, you know, to the extremes. You know, when they talk about it, they say, well, everyone's going to go crazy. You know, they're going to go around licking everything because <laughs> they can, you know, that sort of thing. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I think that people, this experience will probably make people a little more wary of, hygiene and we'll be a little more cautious yeah. of certain things but on the other hand I don't I don't think they'll be going to the other extreme where right I'm not going to travel for a few years till this is all over I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle where people are going to take this experience and say right what do I value more now than I did before and really? you'll find they value um, things they took for granted more you know family and, and friends yeah. um, but also just the ability to freely travel and yeah. freely try new places and uh, small businesses too invest in small businesses because yeah. you know it's been a big thing in the news but also in communities it's been quite clear that places have struggled and they really need yeah. help from um, from customers and we need to give back to those small small communities and small businesses as opposed to just letting these big corporations right. kind of wash through and yeah. make the most of this bad situation. I know. It's like Jeff Bezos has enough money. Yes. <laughs> like I don't need to support him here. I'm hoping that people are going to be like, I want to travel. It's gonna be like trying to walk through the woods in high heels. It's like I know how to do this, but this is a little bit more difficult to like get up. I loved how intentional and homey this place felt. It was vibrant and welcoming and filled with art. It definitely made me feel comforted after a long trip. And I think it's so interesting how you can walk into a space and just feel who has cared for it without knowing the backstory. But we can tell whether or not the space has been cared for or neglected, what its intentions were, and if it's been put to good use. It's an insight on how the designer thinks about space and a reflection of who's been there. Propping your legs up on a nice ottoman is very different than putting them on milk box crates. How spaces are designed influences how we feel in them. They also reflect where you are. On this trip, Sam and I went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is still heavily influenced by Native American origins. Every building was made of thick adobe materials, and doors were outlined with strands of heavy braided chilies. That would feel so strange in some place like Iceland or Japan. Design and architecture is a silent element that makes you feel like you're someplace specific. What our spaces look like heavily influence our impressions, behaviors, and feelings. Even studies suggest that every aspect of design, from the layout to the materials, influences our mood, focus, and stress levels. I'll include that in the show notes. And today, aesthetics are everything. 
coffee shops can no longer just be tables and chairs. The espresso machine needs to be shiny and copper and industrial. Fiddlehead fig trees need to be in every corner and the lighting has to be heavenly. Places that look beautiful get tagged, like, and go viral. And if we want to help support local businesses, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing for smaller places to spice up the place a bit. If a locally run business can get a few more followers or on a travel blogger's must hit list, I'm all for it. I gripe enough about Instagram on this podcast, but I do have a theory that it's changing some things for the better, or at least more beautiful. And I know what I'm about to say may sound extremely superficial, but we totally have social media to thank. Being Instagrammable is the new priority. It's not just coffee shops that are redesigning. Everything is, especially the hospitality industry. And motels are using this to their advantage. Motels also had their heyday back in the 50s with the Great American Road Trip. Families could drive up into their own private room, jump in the community pool, and visit a new state on a budget. The mobile hotel would reflect the region's culture. Travelers would drive up to a neon cactus in the distance and pull into their temporary stay in Arizona. We turned housing into part of the adventure. But too many stories of murder and attracting seedy customers drove families away and the horror stories up. What was bad for motels was great for Hollywood. But today, with the revival of the American road trip comes a motel renaissance. People are buying up rundown motels and turning them into next level glamping. I think enough time has passed where we're happy to pay for a nostalgic experience of life on the road. That's why I want to talk to the manager, Alex, at Foot of the Mountain Motel in Boulder, Colorado. Foot of the Mountain Hotel is secluded in a densely wooded area, but it's only a five minute drive from the lively Pearl Street Mall. The motel rooms are designed to look like little Lincoln Log cabins, but with way better insulation. There's a bright red neon sign in that classic 50s script that welcomed us into our cabin in the woods. It was all the benefits of camping, but with solid Wi-Fi. And little did I know, there's a whole world of motel ownership that is putting on a fresh new coat of paint and vamping up old spaces. I think there's been this sort of like, you know, Route 66 was a really great heyday for the motel. And then, yeah, there was this period, maybe like 80s, 90s, where it was, uh, yeah, there is a stigma attached to motels as somewhat, yeah, you get the Bates Motel, you know, psycho, you know, you get, they, I think, and it, and it really had to do with a lot of ownership, people that had, you know, really loved it and owned it and you know had created a cool experience in the 50s and 60s and maybe 70s they were older they were their place was deteriorating maybe they weren't going to revamp it and a lot of places were lost so there's like thousands of motels along the west that were lost and now it's like a hunt that people are on to find these boutique places and to revamp them and bring them back to life and, and there's a total revolution happening with these small boutique motels uh, that's happening. And that's actually what our, what the management company that I work with, what we do is to find these places and turn them into something like you experienced, which is past meets present. And you know, we wanna have that old feel, 
but you got great Wi-Fi and cable TV and HBO and all that kind of stuff. A quick background on me, I went to school for adventure recreation in Ohio. That is a real degree that always landed me around hotels. So I, I saw this opportunity down in Boulder and, and went down a little over five years ago. And that's where I've been until. So I had those five years or four, you know, four years until COVID to kind of get a lay of the land. And yeah, totally different. Things changed a lot for us last year. But I guess I, if I had, which I do now have some retrospective, you know, a little bit of hindsight, we weren't hit as bad as a lot of places. And, and I think we're really fortunate. And so I'm really thankful for that because a lot of it lends itself, again, to the location, to the setup, a motel. Motel literally means mobile. You can drive your car to your door. So that is, that is part of why that's called that. And they usually meant that it was one floor establishment, that all the rooms were on the first floor. It was a motor hotel. And so um, with our setup, everyone parks at their door. You enter your own room. You're not going down a hallway and through a lobby and going up an elevator and all these different shared air, so a recycled air. So that is a huge thing that people are looking for. And we even had some folks during the like the shutdown who stayed with us because it was safer to stay with us than it was to stay in their apartment building that they were like deathly afraid of. People were seeking us out this year. And I think we actually grew our marketing this year more than we ever have in the past because we had to kind of reinvent who we were talking to and, and obviously got to pivot for like all the different phases of the shutdown and the coming back where, you know, your limited occupancy or the towns at limited occupancy for different, you know, businesses and retail and such. So I would like to say that we handled it about as well as you can. Uh, we didn't make the money that we had hoped to make last year, obviously, but we were here. We're going to keep going and, and it, you know, it didn't shut us down. So what were some moments of like reinvention or ingenuity that you had to work through from last year? Probably our biggest pivot was uh, groups and weddings. So we've never really done weddings in the past and I've got six planned for this summer. So everyone also, I think that's another industry that may have a permanent change, but at least has a change for probably the next three, four years where you're just not having that 300 person wedding, you know, 75, 50 to 75 is now like the ideal wedding size. And we're right in that spot. We're a back area. I don't know if you saw it much, but we're going to be able to host some events back there. But I would say 75 is about our max. So where people weren't looking to us in the past for their weddings, now they are. And I apologize if you're hearing dogs in the background. We're kind of activating that back lawn. We're going to build some decks back there, have some new grilling spaces, hangout spaces. So again, you're just looking at the real estate that you have. How can you best use it? And so, yeah, we're we're always looking at that and we've got a nice little lawn. So we're going to try to try to make the most of it this year. I've also got movies on the lawn that I've, um, we're going to be doing. So I got a big blow up screen and a projector and we're going to do um, sort of midweek to promote folks to travel. Those are our lowest days. Obviously you came on a Saturday, always packed on a Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We need to fill those days, get those last couple of rooms in. And uh, we're going to have movie nights on the lawn and 
I want to have like hotel themed movies for some of the nights. I don't know if I can show all of that because they seem to all be horror movies, but <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So how do you think that the hospitality industry is going to change because of COVID? Like what are some things that you see you're not going to be like going back we're to? We're going to probably just keep doing what we're doing. We've been here 85, 86 years, this property since 1934, longest running motel in Boulder. It's never closed down. It's always been family owned. There's something, there's some special sauce at this place that you got to do something to break it. It's, it's a beautiful location and it's such a cool spot. I get people with, that are like really you know, into like crystal therapy and all this kind of stuff. And they say, this place has energy unlike I've ever felt before. I've never had any ghost stories or anything. It's not haunted. It's really a positive, the energy there is so positive. And, you know, if I can just sort of keep that going and, and I can pass that on to the next ownership, then, then, I'm, then I did my job. I might've kind of already asked this, but like, what do you predict the future of travel to be like. I think this is going to be the best summer we've probably ever had. Yeah. Are you already like booked up? Yeah, just based on sort of how we would see trends at this time of year for the summer, we're outperforming, you know, 2019, 2018, 2017. So yeah. But I think again a lot of that has to go to we've rebranded a lot and we've we've completely creating a space that we didn't exist before. And it was more if people found us. And now it's like, you can't not find us if you search Hotel Boulder or the number one result, Foot of the Mountain Motel. And that's that's huge. So I'm, I'm hoping that that continues. And, and I think everyone is ready to party. Everyone's making plans and, and they're ready. They're ready to, to travel this summer. Everyone's really itching for it. This might actually be the biggest summer as almost like a, as like an after effect. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Maybe that's just hopeful thing. I think there's going to be a boom in travel and art. And I think that like, I think we are going to explode a little bit. People are going to be like, get me the fuck out of this apartment, you know? Well, and, and like, and like we're saying, everyone's having to readjust and, and a lot of people lost companies, like, right. A lot of companies were lost. I think for every company lost, probably three are going to get started because so many people were like, I don't want to work in this industry anymore. Look how susceptible it is to just like this situation that occurred. Maybe this could happen again. I don't want to be in that industry. I'm creating my own brand of like soap over here. Check it out. Mimi's soap. And, and I make it in my garage and, and like how many of those are going to start because of this? So I think, yeah, like you're saying, I think there's going to be a huge revolution. What I think is so interesting about Indie Hostel and Foot of the Mountain is that both spaces are expanding their community. And cookie cutter hotels can't really do that. Hotels are great if you want your own space and feel a little fancy, but I highly suggest that when you go out and start traveling again, that you spend your Biden bucks on locally owned housing. It's the next best thing to traveling with a local. And I think that's why I love couch surfing so much because I get to peek into someone else's home. But to be honest, I 
think I'm getting a little old for couch surfing. I, you know, with age comes sensitive sleeping and I need earbuds and a sleep mask and a white noise machine to get some solid REM cycles going. And now I have a partner I would like to share a bed with and sleeping on someone's couch doesn't exactly give us the quality time we would like. So as I slowly pivot away from couch surfing, I'm still looking for ways to keep my adventures going without having to sleep on someone's floor. But I still want to play house. After driving across America for four days, Sam and I finally arrived at a ranch house Airbnb in Arizona. We drove through a Native American reservation for most of it, the land opening up and letting us see for miles ahead of us. I feel like I could just see so much more of the earth. There were these massive yellow and lavender cliffs just jutting out from the land. It was the nothingness I had wanted so badly. We noticed all the trailers that we passed by. This is all we left the Native Americans. Arid land, minimal housing, stretches of nothing. We gave them only the sun in the sky and that isn't enough. The cell service dropped almost the entire way and I felt my blood pressure rise. As we drove deeper into the Native American reservation and swirled through the terrain, the day started to leave us. In the haze between night and day, we could see a thunderstorm crashing in the distance. You never get that kind of heads up in real life. Once night took over, we got caught in a dust storm, strong enough that it felt like Blueberry could be blown off course, even after weighing tons and having all of our stuff in it. We held our breath as we passed through it, and we felt our car rock like an unsteady boat at sea. As Blueberry arched over a long hill, in the distance, we saw a smattering of lights down below, as if the stars had fallen onto the earth and kept their light aflame. Those are the only lights that we saw for hours. There are no street lights, only the occasional blinding light of a pickup truck blasting in the opposite direction. Both the hours and the miles started to reach closer to zero. 300 miles. Podcasts and music lost their glow. 200 miles to go. And we just wanted to get there. Eventually, our GPS and gas holds out for the 400-mile drive 100 miles to go. until we finally turned into a dusty driveway and found ourselves at the place that we had booked months ago. We pressed into the keypad and welcomed ourselves into the picture that we had been staring at for thousands of miles. When we woke up the next morning and pulled open the curtains, we were welcomed with a mammoth red cliff in the distance cutting through the blazing blue sky above it. We made it, and I was so in awe of its beauty. Strangers Abroad was written, produced, edited, voiced, thought of, and created by me, Adrian Bain. If you like this show, I would like you so much to rate and review it. You can follow me on Instagram at Strangers Abroad Podcast or email me at Strangers Abroad Podcast at gmail.com. Until then, keep traveling.